That song is actually one of the most breathtaking passages of Scripture, from one of the most breathtaking passages of Scripture in all the Bible, when God reveals Himself. you got to go read it. It's in the book of Exodus. Moses asked to see God's glory. He says, you can't. You'll die. Um, and so he, he hides Him. So his glory, when his glory train passes by the wake, if you will, of God's glory, Moses is able to look upon that. And then God speaks. God is a verbal God. He declares something. What will God say about himself? Um, does he say, I'm a, I'm a just God. I'm a holy God. I am I'm a, a vengeful God. I'm a jealous God. The Bible says all of those things. No, God says that He's the covenant God who is long-suffering, gracious and compassionate, forgiving sin and iniquity and transgressions and showing mercy uh, to thousands. He is it's a beautiful passage of, of God's grace. That same God uh, that, uh, that created Israel also created His church. The Lord Jesus Christ promised in Matthew 16 to build His church. And we are looking at the anatomy of the church and we're observing how God has designed it. There is no other thing on earth like the church. It's precious. It's not a company. It's not an organization. It's not a club. It's not a, it's not a non-profit. There's really nothing in the, in the secular world to, to describe it. It's, it's unique. It's what Christ promised to build. And yet if the church doesn't function properly or is not organized well, it won't be as effective in its mission as it, as it can be. And we've been observing that if you summarize all of the passages in the New Testament, you'll find three major features of the of the church, at least the church's anatomy. Those are the visible leaders, sometimes called elders, overseers, or pastors, the exemplary servers, better known as deacons, and then there is the maturing ministers. That's you. Leaders, servers, and ministers. All three are part of the same body, and yet each serve a different function or, or role. And we started by looking at the church's visible leaders called pastors, and we saw where they came from, what they look like, and then what they do. Today we're going to turn our attention to the exemplary servers of the church. Like pastors, deacons play a crucial role in the life and the health of a, of a local church. They are God's models of spiritual service in the, in the congregation. You should be able to look at a a deacon, and see how you, to serve well. They're also the, the lubricant of the engine in the, in, in the church. They represent what exemplary service looks like, and they smooth the inner workings of the other gifts in the church. There's the leaders, then there are the servers, and then there are the ministers. That's, that's the congregation. You are... You're ministers. You are equipped to do the work of the ministry. And as you function together with your different gifts, the Bible says the body is built up. It, it, it matures and, 
as every joint supplies, the, the maturity happens. Well, the deacon's role in the church is to provide the oil in those inner workings of the gifts and also serve the, the leaders. Now, I would say if the, if the biblical model of church leadership is often ignored today for a, for a more worldly or contemporary model, I would say the biblical role of the servants in the church are often misunderstood, especially in our Baptist history. Their dysfunction is tied together. The dysfunction in, 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 um, in ignoring a biblical model of leadership and being confused about a biblical role of the servants of the church. The church seems, thankfully not ours, but the church seems to favor worldly ideas about leadership over the biblical model. And I think that's because that's what they see in everyday in everyday life, they model the church after the business or after the government, and so the result is that that a pastor is thought like like a CEO or a president instead of a servant and a shepherd. We looked at that issue in detail in the previous messages. But this area, uh, this, this error, doesn't just affect the pulpit. It doesn't just affect pastors. Whenever you have a wrong view of biblical leadership, when that's out of order, the church church is. Uh, uh, typically attempt to alter the role of a deacon to shore up some of the deficiencies that that that, that, that creates. I mean, if you don't have a group of, of called, qualified, congregationally recognized pastors or elders leading, feeding and shepherding a local church, the church feels the weakness. And so they try to shore that up by, by modification, with modifications or making adjustments. And they'll do that to either one or both of the of the biblical offices. They'll either go full-blown authoritarian and they'll create a, a solo pastor, what I call the Baptist Pope model, where he has extra-biblical authority because the church tries hyper-congregationalism. You know what I mean by that? They're voting on the color, proverbial color of the carpet and those kind of things. And so you have four-hour business meetings with the poor lady working in the nursery, taking care of the kids while the Baptist fist fight over whether to paint, you know, a, a, a shade of gray or a shade of blue in the, in the nursery. That doesn't work. And people get tired of it. So what they do is they, they go authoritarian. Well, we need a pastor, and he needs to be a strong leader, and he needs to be able to tell us what, what to do. And we'll just then have to figure out how to keep him, keep him in, in check. The other thing that, that, that churches often do is they, they create deacon boards that are part pastor and part deacon. They're neither. Uh, one, somebody a few weeks ago called them delders. They're not deacons and they're not elders. They're, they're delders. Neither of them are, are biblical. Neither of those approaches are biblical. And both will stunt the growth of, of the church. A solo pastor who has more authority than God intended him to have eclipses the other gifts that God has given to his church. And then new leaders are, are never, are never developed. And you've seen that model before. Again, thankfully not here. Everything runs through the pastor. And if it doesn't, you'll hear about it, right? These churches never grow beyond the gifts and the spirituality of the pastor. He is the He's the lid. And sadly, churches, those churches often take on his faults and his weaknesses as, 
as well. I think this is one of the strongest practical arguments for a plurality of pastors or a plurality of leaders. The senior pastor may be better trained, more gifted, more experienced than anyone else in the church, but he's still very limited. He's still very flawed. And so God has ordained other godly shepherds lead with him. There's a distinction. There's someone who typically stands in the pulpit. There's the quarterback on the team. There's a first among equals. There's all kinds of phrases to, 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 that, that, have, that, that people have come up with to describe that there's a distinction and yet there is a, a group of leaders that, that are operating under the Scriptures recognized by the congregation leading the church. Those additional gifts in that group shore up the senior pastor's weakness. As the Bible says, in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. Believe me, you do not want a church that's limited to my gifting and sanctification. So I said the other error is creating a board of men who are not shepherds. They don't possess the spiritual gifts of an overseer. They're not adequately trained. They're, they're not able to, to teach. And then they try to co-lead the church or counterbalance the, the, the pastors in some way. And besides being unbiblical, that's just bad. When you create an extra biblical layer or role where deacons are decision makers or quasi overseers of the church, you hinder them from actually doing what God has designed them to do. What ends up happening is deacons don't really serve, which is what they're called to do. They meet, they make decisions, they committee each other to death, and then the church suffers because the church needs real servants. It needs real lubricant. There, there are issues in the church. There are needs that come up. There are ministries that have to be, that have to be done. And the deacons are the ones that, that help serve in that, in that role. That's bad for the church if they don't function that way. It's also bad if they're in that kind of role because they take on spiritual responsibility that they were never intended to bear. It has nothing to do with natural ability, calling, or giftedness. The gifts for leading the church are spiritually granted by the Holy Spirit. And being equipped to serve is the same way. It's not a higher or lower thing. Both of those worldly models I just described are bad for the church. You keep pastors that Christ has given to His church from shepherding it, and you hinder deacons that Jesus has provided to His church from serving, and the church doesn't grow. So, that's what, what you shouldn't do. Does the Bible have any clear model, any clear teaching? And in, indeed it does. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. God provides visible leaders to guide His church by the Word, and He also provides exemplary servers to His church to humbly attend to its, to its needs. There are three primary areas that you can go in the New Testament and you can see the office or the, the function of a deacon develop. Acts 6, very familiar, we'll look at that this morning, identifies the need for deacons. They're not called deacons there, but, but this is kind of the... The, uh, the original cry, um, and then it's filled in later. By the time you get to Philippians 1.1, which is about 61 A.D., it shows that this group is identified. The overseers, Paul writes to the overseers and the deacons and the saints. 
that are in Philippi. So he clearly identifies these three groups in Philippians 1.1. And then in 1 Timothy 3, that reveals the character qualifications that must be evident in a person's life in order to be set apart or identified as, as a servant of the church. And when you put all of those together, you find there are three features that identify the exemplary servers of the, of the church. Their scriptural purpose, why we have them. Why should you have deacons? Why did God give deacons? Their sanctifying function, what do they do? And then their scriptural qualifications, who should, who should be one? Their purpose, their function, and their qualification. Let's look at this first one, their scriptural purpose. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts, chapter 6. Now, anytime you go into the book of Acts or in the Gospels, I think it's important to remember that this is a narrative, this is a story. It's different from 1 Timothy or, say, the, uh, the letter to the Philippians. Those are prescriptive. I'm writing a letter. Paul says, I'm writing a letter to you, Timothy, to give you specific instructions. Do this, don't do this. I command you, Timothy, to do this. That's very different from the Gospels in the book of Acts. The Gospels tell the story of what Jesus did. The book of Acts tells the story. It's a narrative. It tells how the Holy Spirit, the acts of the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, how the Holy Spirit under the leadership of Christ, builds his church. And here you find, as the story begins to unfold, a very interesting passage that gives way to the office of, of a deacon later. The Bible here illustrates why God provides model servants to his church. It's so necessary ministry is not neglected. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows, that's the Hellenistic Jews, their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, here's the issue. The church began at Pentecost and was growing, and as that growth took place, an issue arises. We're, we don't know exactly how many members. It just says here that, that during the time the disciples were increasing. Acts 4.4 tells us that there were 5,000 men to the church. Some estimate that the church by this time in Acts 6 had 20,000 members in it. And Scripture says that this growth brings an issue. Hellenistic Jews, those who were Jews from the diaspora, those who were scattered, those the Jews who spoke Greek, um, felt the Hebrew believers were not properly caring for their widows. There was a widow's role, and the widows that genuinely did not have family to care for them, the church helped them, and so they, they distributed money or, or food. And this problem threatens the church, and so the apostles are called to deal with it. Look, if you would, at verse uh, 2. It says, so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this 
task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, I think it's interesting here, the church didn't ignore the problem. And a lot of churches do that. I also think it's interesting that just because growth comes doesn't solve all of your problems. In fact, it could actually increase your problems. You have more people to give an account for and more opportunities for those gears to grind, more gifts, more more backgrounds, more issues, more levels of sanctification. And in the book of Acts, in Acts 6, those gears are grinding together. And the church doesn't ignore the problem. They dealt with it. And, and they do so by providing service, servants for the task. Up to this point, the you can read, the church is partially organized. It had leaders who were the apostles, but there are no deacons, there are no other positions. They knew the number of converts. We know that because they recorded at time. They knew the number of members. They, they met at a specific place. They met at a specific time. They had meals in homes, money was collected, distributed, but other organization was not in, in, in place yet. The point here is this ministry, this need that arises um, has to be cared for. And look at what the leadership did in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation. They surveyed, or there's a surveying that takes place. They, You find them selecting, and then those men are submitted and they're set apart. Select from among yourselves in verse 3. In verse um, 5, the statement found approval in the whole congregation, and they chose, they, they selected... And then you will find them submitting those individuals to the apostles. And then in verse 6, they they laid hands on them. They they organized the ministry. They looked over the congregation. And they selected people that had already had experience in the, in the, the, the Jewish banking industry. And those were the individuals that they put in charge of the money. Is that what it says? It has nothing to do with natural ability. They surveyed the congregation for individuals that were already serving. The idea here is to seek out or to survey. It means to search. It means to look over the congregation and examine it for individuals to perform this ministry. Not just a warm body, but somebody who met specific requirements. And then they, they selected them. And they did that based on criteria. And he gives five criteria in here. You would at um, verse 3. They were to be men, at least in this, in this scenario. They were to be from among you. Those placed in leadership should come from membership. Those placed in service comes from the membership. They have a good reputation. They were men of integrity. They were full of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I think it's just a side note, there's no task in the church too small to think of utilizing unspiritual people. That's a train wreck. These men were distributing food, handling money, and God says that they're to be full of the, the Spirit. They also had wisdom, sober and righteous in judgment. They were able, they knew the Scriptures, and they were able to, 
to apply it. And then after that, they submitted them to the, to the apostles. Look, if you would, at verse 6. These, list of men there, uh, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on him. Now, it's interesting, we don't know this for sure, but all of the names that are listed here of the individuals they selected, those are all Greek names, all of them. And so the entire church sets apart Hellenist uh, servants because they were the ones that felt neglected. There's a, there's, a, there's a deferring that's happening here. It's a beautiful thing. Rather than going, what do you mean? I'm taking care of, of, you know, of my Hebrew grandmother. You, you, I don't even know what you're talking about. And arguing, the whole church comes together and defers to the, to the Hellenists. And they choose men that meet the standards and they submit them to the approval of the leaders that God had placed over the flock. The apostles had approval of those that were selected and then they submitted them. Finally, they set them apart. Verse 6, these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. They set them apart. So everyone would know, this is who is in charge of this specific ministry. And then they performed it. So you have organization, you have oversight by godly people, you have, they're recognized by fellow believers, and then they're identified for for that ministry. What, what, a, what a great picture. Now notice I skipped over verses 2 and, and 4. You would at verse 2. Why? What is the, the scriptural purpose? Which is this first point. So the twelve summoned the congregation and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God to serve tables. The point is, whatever structure you have in a church or need that arises, you should never allow it to minimize the main thing, which is making the Word of God known. Are, are serving tables unimportant? No. Were the, were the Hellenists unimportant? No. Were widows unimportant? No. It would destroy the church if it wasn't, wasn't done. But nothing should take people out of their God-ordained positions to serve Him. And when the servants did their job well and they make sure these logistical needs of the congregation are met, then the spiritual needs can also be met. Look at verse 7, how this whole scene ends. The Word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and even a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So rather than derailing, it continues to grow. When the ministry was managed, the men of God maintained their post, then the Word of God spread. And that is always a deacon's sanctifying purpose. Let's look at the second one here. <clears throat> it's clear from Acts 6 why God set apart the role and the benefits and the blessings of having godly men that, that fulfill that, that task. But what do they do? Do they just take care of the widows? Do they just serve, serve tables? <clears throat> well, I think you find that in, in this second point. There's the, the sanctifying function. 
And you'll see that from the fact that there is a list is absent, and you can also see it in their descriptive title. Now, I don't know how it works around your house, <clears throat> but whenever I was growing up, my father always had a to-do list for everybody. In fact, before post-it notes were popular, I think we, we probably owned stock in the company. There were post-it notes all over the house. I could still see this plain as day. There was this, this brown um, metal, <clears throat> what's it called, uh, over your, like your exhaust fan. It was over the stove. And it was brown, and it, the edges were like a darker brown. almost looked like it was kind of airbrushed. And so it was metal, so there were magnets all over it. When you got up in the morning, you went to, you passed by the stove. You had to pass by the stove, which is why the note was there, the to-do list was there, and everyone had a list. Um, and if you didn't do the list from the day before, then you had a note on that list explaining to you what was going to happen if you didn't fulfill the duties that you failed to do yesterday. In fact, one of the subtle or not so subtle ways that you found out that you made it in the Farrell family was that you got a letter or you got a list. And I can remember Tracy and I talking about that whenever we were, we were, we were dating. She got a letter. She got a, uh, my dad's name is William Bryan, WB, so his short is dub. She got a, she got a dub letter. And that expla- he, would, he would then explain what needed to be done. And then he'd give you orders in which needed to be completed. Well, it's not that way in the Bible for the servants of the church. I mean, if you think about this, here are the individuals that are the oil, as one man called them, shock absorbers in the church as the bumps and things happen, as the church is moving and doing all the different ministers and, and, the, and the, the, the pastors are, 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 are leading and overseeing and shepherding. The deacons are this oil. If that's that important that it's going to derail it, why not? Why does the Bible not give a, you know, 1 Timothy 4 and a list of everything that a deacon is supposed to do in order to, in order to, to do that? If you watch the deacons here, you'll see them serve the Lord's table and you'll see them do other things. They do many things that you'd never see. And if you go to another church, you might find them doing something else. That's because the Bible doesn't outline a specific list of tasks for a deacon to do. It tells you what they don't do. It tells you that they don't lead, they don't oversee, they don't, they're not the official teachers in the church. But you'll search the Bible in vain for a specific job list of a deacon. This is probably the closest that you'll find. Instead, the Bible defines their function. And that can be seen in the absence of a, of a list. Pastors pronounce the Word of God, preside over the church of God, preserve the flock of God, but there's no catalog of duties for deacons because they are need-based servants. It's the entire job description of a deacon. Do you ever get the, the job description um, and you read through the whole thing and then there's that, there's that final line at the very bottom that says, other duties as assigned? That is the entire job description in the Bible for a deacon. Other duties as assigned. The servants of the church give themselves to whatever needs arise to ensure the logistics are managed and the pastors can give themselves to leadership in the Word. That's why there's no list. 
A deacon operates under the oversight of a group of, of godly pastors, and the deacons help the pastors fulfill their obligation to watch over the flock. They do whatever the elders need done. They keep the sparks down. They cause the gifts to work together. That's also why there are no set number of deacons in the Bible. There's no formula like you need ten deacons in every church. Um, you need one deacon for every twenty individuals. There's nothing like that in the Bible. That's because the church is to set apart a deacon whenever there's a model man and there's enough need that begins to pull the pastors away from shepherding and teaching the Word or there's something that's left unmanaged and the gears begin to grind. That's whenever you set apart a deacon. And you don't just set apart anybody. You look in the congregation and find somebody who's already serving, who's already applying that oil, supplying that, helping to promote that, that unity, and already has godly character. And they say, and they say, we want to identify you before the whole congregation so the congregation knows what it looks like to be a, a model servant and somebody who builds unity. You can also see it, though, in their title, besides an absent list. You can see it in their, in their title. I called them exemplary servants. Because the minute I say the word deacon, then you automatically begin to fill in or tune out. Because you've heard that before, you've read Acts 6 before, you've read 1 Timothy 3 before, you know the Bible, right? Exemplary servants is, a, is, a, is not a word found in the Bible, it's, it's a description. Well, the word deacon, the title deacon is also... A description. It's a descriptive term. It means servant. The Greek word is where we get the word deacon. The root means to hasten, to kick up dust. Uh, a deacon is someone who hastens after service. You will find a, a cloud of, of servant dust behind their feet as they go about the, the, the church. They busy themselves about the needs of God's uh, of God's people. The word, though, before it was, it became the the title. It was it was used for to describe people. It's used a lot in the in the Bible. Thirty six times as a verb. Thirty three times as as a noun. Thirty uh, twenty nine times as another noun. That's a lot in the Bible. And before it's used to to define this specific group of individuals in Philippians one one. I'm writing to the overseers the recognized servants, and then the congregation, it's used to describe what somebody did. It's a descriptive title. The Apostle Paul was described as a deacon. The Apostle Paul was an apostle. It's used for Peter's mother-in-law when, when she served a meal in Luke 4.39. It's the table waiters at the, at the Canaan wedding supper in the Gospel of John. They brought water. They're, they were servants. It's the same, same word that's used in Romans 13, talking about the authorities or the police. They're, they're deacons, if you will. They're servants of, of, of God. They serve. Jesus Himself described His work with the Word. And it makes total sense. When needs arose in the church, the apostles looked around for people to take on a specific task, and the congregation chose people who were already serving. Their life was already marked. By service. I mean, think about it. 
if you need a carpenter, what do you look for? Uh, someone who can't pound a nail? I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's logical. You don't, don't look to me. You can ask Tim Boyer that. Don't look, don't look to me. I'm not a carpenter. You'd look for somebody who's already showing the ability to build stuff. And the apostles did the same thing. They looked around. They saw who was the godly character who made themselves available, who took on other people's needs. And that's what we mean by exemplary servants. They're models for the rest of the church. I think it's important to pause and, and say something. Uh, Mike Sweet said something on the way over here about, you know, he's looking forward to the message and, um, you know, just just going to hear God's Word. And I reminded him, I spoke to the, the, the pastors for three sermons. The deacons only get one sermon. And that's really what I want to caution you about. This is not a sermon to deacons. This is a sermon to the whole church. Um not only so you'll know what the Bible says about organization, but also because you are called to serve as well. All Christians are called to serve. In fact, Jesus said, besides love, that is one of the hallmarks of a believer. Thankfulness, service, and love. Those are, those are the three things that you'll find repeated over and over in the, in the Bible. Mark 10:45 and Matthew 20:28. 20, you know this passage well. It says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Our master came to serve. And so we shouldn't be thinking about how can somebody serve me? We should be thinking about how we can serve others because we follow in his footsteps. We should be busy about that. I think one of the most poignant passages in the New Testament on this is John 13, when Jesus teaches His disciples this, this truth. It's, it's when Christ washes the disciples' feet. John 13, Jesus pours water into a basin and He begins to wash the disciples' feet and then to wipe them with a towel, the one that He was girded with. And so He comes to Simon Peter. You remember what Simon says? Lord, do you wash my feet? That's what Peter says. It was, it was shocking to Peter that the Messiah himself would, would take on such a menial task. In Peter's mind, it was beneath him. And Peter's pride would have none of it. You remember what Jesus said? I think I have it. Jesus answered and said to them, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. Peter said to him, Neither shall you wash my feet. Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And then Peter says, Hose me down then. You know, give me a bath. And Simon Peter then said, Lord, Wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And then he gives this lesson that's up on your screen. He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And watch this. You are right. I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Now, the example Jesus gave is not a third ordinance of foot washing. The example that He gave is rooted in the fact that He was Lord and He was teacher and He stooped to serve. And that's the example that He gives to us. That's how we're to see ourselves and how we're to give ourselves. We are servants of others. We have no rights. We have no agenda other than Christ. And we give our lives in service to to others. That's what a Christian's life looks like. And that's what He did. He says, he ends that old passage, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. We are sent. We're not greater than the one who who sent us. And if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And when you understand that, you'll understand serving other people is a is a blessing. And then being an exemplary servant, doing it to the point that it marks your life to the place that the congregation sets you apart and says you're a model for everybody to look at. You have no rights and no agenda and you give yourself away so much we want to set you apart so the rest of the church can see what this looks like. Whenever you realize that, you'll, you'll understand that it's a privileged position because as you serve, you get to model your, your Savior. The purpose... So the men of God can proclaim the Word of God and the gears won't grind and the function is to serve under the overseers to meet the needs of the church and the men who are set apart to do that all have a, an unassailable testimony. Here's their spiritual qualifications. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy 3. We won't be here long. This is the passage that Ryan read for us this morning. First Timothy three, in verse eight. Now we have two lists here of qualifications, don't we? We've already been through the ones for, for pastors, for elders, and now we're we're looking at the ones for for deacons. And when you look at the New Testament, it's very clear the role of a, of a pastor, of the pastors, and it's, it's very clear by the lack of a list of what the deacons are, are to do, the Word and other things. But the deacon's main difference from an elder is, is not the difference of, of gifts or... or uh, sorry, it's the difference of gifts or, or calling, not character. There's no difference in character when you look at these lists. Really, when you, if you lay these two lists side by side, you'll, you will see the Bible echoing their roles. When you look at this list, the moral qualifications are the same for an elder and for a deacon. The exemplary servers of the church should be men of godly character, just like the group of pastors leading the church. And when you look at this list, you see how their qualities are applied to each of the differing roles. Let me point a few of them out to you. The qualifications of each group signify a trait that's needed for them to accomplish their their duty. Elders are 
required to be able to teach. Deacons hold the faith with a good conscience because deacons do not have an official teaching position in the role and pastors do, but they need to hold the faith. But they don't need to teach the faith, per se, in a public setting like this. Both pastors and deacons must be able to manage their own households well. But the deacon list leaves out taking care of the church of God. Because deacons are not in a ruling or leading position in the church. That function belongs to the overseers. Both pastors and deacons must be tested before they're placed in in an official role. But the requirement about a new not being a new convert, lest they be lifted up in pride, is not given to the list in, uh, of a deacon. Because overseers, being in a leadership position, can easily be lifted up in pride. And deacons wouldn't be susceptible to that because they are, they are servants in the, in, the, in the church. Benjamin Merkel has a great article if you want to go deeper than that. The differences in the qualifications echo their functions. But look at the qualifications. There's one positive trait in verse 8 and three negative to start. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity. There's the positive. Here's the three negatives. Not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. The model servants must be reverent. That means serious, that means stately, that means dignified, sober in mind and character. Deacons must be stable men. They understand the seriousness of, of important matters and they serve with that frame of mind. They must not be double-tongued. It means not a tail-bearer or inconsistent or not a gossip. Deacons must not be hypocritical in their speech, they... They must be honest and consistent and have integrity in what they say. They don't say one thing and mean another. They don't say one thing to one person and say something else to, to someone else. They're not given to much wine. It means not preoccupied with drink. Literally, to turn one's mind or to occupy yourself with, with drink. It must not influence his life. Not greedy for money. Deacons must not use his office, use their office for for any reason other than serving, not for self-enrichment. Look at what else it says. Holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience in verse 9. Now notice it says the mystery of the faith. That's the body of Christian truth. It's not their personal faith, like faith versus doubt. This is the substance of all Christ taught. The model servants of the church should have a grasp on the key elements of doctrine and hold firmly to, 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 to that belief with, with sincerity, a pure conscience. Meaning a conscience that does not accuse them, that they're, they're out of line with any of that or they don't know any of that. Elders must not just have a firm grasp on the key elements of doctrine they must know all doctrine and they must be able to refute error and they must be able to instruct in those, with all authority, the Bible says. Notice what else it says. If you drop down to verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and of their households. They, they're to oversee their, their home well. 
they're to exhibit the ability to to manage ministry in their families, just like they would have to manage ministry in the in the church. They're to have singular devotion to their wife. We went over that when we looked at elders. Even those who serve and never stand with the authority to proclaim God's word must have pure hearts and good homes. God's serious. So when does a person then meet these requirements? How, how do you know if they, if they do? I mean, is it because they remain a member for a long time and you have an open opening on the deacon board and we say, hey, I never thought about, you know, old Jed. He would probably be good. They self-promote. Hey, pastor, I think I'd like to try that deacon thing. Um, maybe the buddy system. Well, God reveals the answer in the final qualification. Look back at verse 10. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they're unassailable, they're beyond reproach. But let these also, in addition to these characteristics, let these first be tested and then let them serve as deacons. After examination, and if examination brings no charge and no sustained accusation, then they're set apart. To place an untested man even in the role of the servant for a congregation is to violate Scripture. I mean, think about it. If they're the oil and they're the ones that create unity in the congregation, think about having uh, an ungodly person in that role. They do nothing but stir up division and, and strife. The word indicates an ongoing evalu- evaluation, just like with, with pastors, of their character and service. They can disqualify themselves at, at, at any point. And those who serve in this way are truly blessed. Look at verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Two things. Two rewards that are given to those who serve well in the church. They obtain for themselves a high standing. They're respected and honored. Faithful deacons are respected and emulated by other members, which is a significant honor. Um, I want to be like Harold Nash whenever I grow up. And you should want to be like Harold Nash too. It's an honor for somebody to say that about you. Why do I say that about Brother Harold? He's probably blushing in the back. Because he serves so well that he's a, he's a dignified man. He's a respected man. It also says they'll gain, they'll gain great confidence in the faith. They obtain for themselves, through their service, a high standard and great confidence in the faith. They'll experience assurance because they'll see God's power operating in their service. They'll see a situation like Acts 6 that threatens something in the church and they'll be inserted in there. They'll serve well. They'll create unity provide that oil, and the pastors will be able to continue to do what they do, and the church will continue to go on and grow, and, and there'll be confidence when they see God's power working. Hey, the Bible works. When I do what I'm supposed to do, God blesses 
and they'll be encouraged to serve even more. Honor and assurance, respect and successful service. Really, what what more could a true Christian desire? (laughs) It's truly an honorable thing to be one of God's exemplary servants. And I thank the Lord for everyone that we have. Three identifying features. Their scriptural purpose, their sanctifying function, and their significant qualifications. But you know, as we talk about the servants of the church, I can't help but think about God's chief servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 describes Him as the sin-bearing servant. He didn't create unity or applied oil. He suffered in your place and took upon Himself your sin. He died for you. The one who should have been served instead served you by taking your place in judgment. And on the cross absorbed all of God Almighty's wrath that you deserve for all of your sin, past, present, and future. And He extinguished that. He propitiated. And on the cross, He freely offered Himself without spot to God so God can freely offer to you salvation. And how can you respond to that? How do you respond to that? The Bible says repent and believe. Turn from yourself, from your own way of living, your rebellion, your sin, whatever it is, and turn to Christ as your only provision. All of your weight is on Him and what He has done. And if you do, He'll serve you not only in salvation, but like He's doing even this very moment as your advocate. The advocate of all Christians at the right hand of the Father. What a Savior. Won't you bow your heads?